It's Thursday, the 27th of February, and this is the Monocle Minute. Today, Russia plots its interference in the upcoming US election, but whose side are they on? putting that doubt in the back of people's minds. And so the fact that the Democrats are already saying, hey, Russia, keep out of our elections, the official Russians will be rubbing their hands with glee. Plus, Los Angeles cracks down on Hollywood's sightseeing bus tours. And our editor, Andrew Tuck, considers why urban planners are so often perplexed by the principles of placemaking. I'm Ben Ryland in London. The Monocle Minute starts now. U.S. President Donald Trump is said to have been furious at a classified briefing that warned of Russian interference in the upcoming election. Intelligence officials are also said to be concerned of possible meddling in the Democratic primaries, while others claim Moscow is actually working to get Bernie Sanders the nomination. So whose side is the Kremlin on? Stephen Diel is a Russia analyst. One of the great things, as far as Putin is concerned, is that he can interfere in in Western institutions, be they elections, be it the European Union, whatever. He he, he doesn't like the West being stable and being a good example for for other for Russians perhaps to look at and say, oh, wouldn't it be better if we lived that way? So the more confusion he can sow, the better. And if he can do it as cheaply as possible, so social media and if you know if they pay for even a couple of million dollars for some advertisements, or they have of course their troll factories, we know that. I mean, that's proven. They have troll factories, um, particularly in St. Petersburg, and they send out uh, messages either through individuals and then they, they copy them through bots. You know, it just sows doubt into people's minds and it doesn't cost them very much. This is the, the one of the key factors for Putin. Russia, if you're listening, I hope you're able to find the 30,000 emails that are missing. I think you will probably be rewarded mightily by our press. Putin has become, in a sense, it's almost a bit like an alcoholic who will say to you, no, no, I've stopped drinking, but then they will go and do it. They will keep denying that they're doing it, but everyone knows that they're doing it. And actually, they don't really even care if people know that they're doing it. They'll still keep denying it with a straight face. It's putting that doubt in the back of people's minds. And so the fact that the Democrats are already saying, hey, Russia, keep out of our elections, uh, they will be rub- the Russians at the top, the, the official Russians, will be ha- rubbing their hands with glee. And let me tell Mr. Putin, who interfered in the 2016 election, try to bring Americans against Americans. Hey, Mr. Putin, if I'm president of the United States, trust me, you're not going to interfere in any more American elections. I don't think Russia is going to put its weight heavily behind one Democrat or another, and they, they will see what's going on. They'll, they'll keep throwing these marbles on the floor um, for people to slip over. But if, let's suppose, it turns out to be Bernie Sanders against Trump, they may even just carry on throwing marbles and, and try to upset both sides. We know that they were pleased about the election of Trump against Hillary Clinton back in 2016, and we still look at Trump and we think... You know, there is still this thought in the back of people's minds, what has Putin got on Trump? So it might well suit them to have Trump back in. They may well decide, ah, actually, you know, we've had enough of him. And, oh, this Sanders guy, maybe we'll put put some weight behind him. I mean, I don't have a hotline to the Kremlin, but I don't believe that the Kremlin has a preferred candidate among the Democrats. So they'll mess around. And once they know who it is, then I think there will be a concerted policy to, to stir things up.
Los Angeles's Department of Transport is to start limiting which streets may be used by bus tour companies. Residents in and around Hollywood have for years been complaining of congested streets, blocked driveways and nosy tourists taking too many holiday snaps. There are even calls to move the famous Hollywood sign in an effort to discourage visitors from its namesake neighbourhood, Hollywoodland, the construction of which led to the creation of the original version of the sign. I spoke to the journalist Adrian Glick-Kudler as that campaign to move the sign was taking off in 2017 and I asked her about the Hollywoodland neighbourhood. Yeah, well, I think like the maps to the stars, things you think of, that's really not Hollywood at all. That's like further to the west, Bel Air and Brentwood. Hollywoodland is somewhat similar in that it's a hilly neighborhood. It's just to the north of Hollywood proper. And it's got these like tiny winding streets. It almost feels like the streets are sort of intended to keep people out. It's important to remember that Hollywoodland isn't just another L.A. neighbourhood. The area was developed during the height of the silent film era, when the concept of cinema as the dominant and most lucrative art form was at its greatest. The people who starred in pictures were more famous than anyone else in the world. And without television or social media, they were much more recognisable than anyone will likely ever be again. The Hollywoodland sign, in its original form, was studded with around 4,000 light bulbs. At night, it would light up in three parts, Hollywood land. If you were looking for America's most promising industry town, there was no question you had arrived. The plot was developed altogether in the early 1920s, um, and the original owners were fairly well off. They were given a choice in in-house styles, French Normandy or Mock Tudor, Mediterranean, Spanish colonial, fairly large houses for the time. Now they're more modest for single family houses in LA, although they're, they're still pretty large and expensive. Those were sort of new styles in Los Angeles at the time, but now I think they've kind of come to represent the mishmash of architectural styles in Los Angeles. They really cover some of the major categories you see around LA now. The problems faced by the residents of Hollywoodland and other popular LA neighbourhoods deserve serious attention from city authorities. We all rely on regulators to help maintain our quality of life. Any serious plan to relocate the famous sign would be a film historian's equivalent of, say, relocating the Colosseum. But it's an understandable reaction to a decades-old problem, one that should have been tackled sooner. The new traffic rules are a positive move, but encouraging tourists to respect the privacy of residents may also help. Hollywood may be a movie town, but that doesn't mean visitors should treat it like their own personal film set. What gives a location a sense of place? The concept of ambience can be tricky to pin down, which may explain why urban planners so often get it wrong. Monocle's editor, Andrew Tuck, takes a closer look. Urbanists and city planners, developers and architects talk a lot about placemaking. Ordinary people do not. Ordinary people know what a place is, 
and how to make one too. And they also know when they've been let down and find themselves living in a place with no sense of place, nothing to hold on to. Okay, a little bit airy-fairy for this time of day. Let's take this from a different angle. Cities are growing fast. New towns are being erected at pace on greenfield sites. But as these new quarters and villages are built, how, the professionals worry, can you make them feel, well, like that place? And how can you also re-inject a sense of identity into towns that have stumbled, say, an industrial outpost where the key trade has died and poverty is on the rise? The professional placemaking solutions will include good design, community engagement, transport links, spaces for people to gather, and another piece of jargon, considered public realm. Where am I headed with this? Well, there's also an argument that while you can supply the tools, plant the seeds, you choose your metaphor, what really makes somewhere a place is often organic. Development that happens across time, and it's therefore hard to pin down as a science. And in this more organic take on placemaking, smaller things come into play. I get to live in a bit of central London that's home to the country's most famous children's hospital, numerous colleges, public housing and big townhouses with shiny front doors. It's properly mixed, but it really has a vibe. There's not a consistent architectural style, but the brutalist college buildings and Georgian houses let you know when you're in Bloomsbury. Yes, it's the place of the Bloomsbury set, the famous literary gang that lived in squares and loved in triangles. And there's another thing that makes a place, a name that people are happy to use that has, again, over time become redolent with meaning. And with a name comes boundaries. You know when you're crossing out of your hood, a name tells you where you are, where you belong. Even in cities, these urban villages create connections, make places. Yes, Bloomsbury has good transport links and community engagement, but that's not what made it a place. And perhaps that's the rub with placemaking. You need lives to be lived. No bag of tricks will let you take a complete shortcut to your destiny. That's not saying don't try. Just remember that the real placemakers will never use that term. The real placemakers are the people who will live in your new towns and make it theirs, one day at a time. My thanks to our editor, Andrew Tuck. Elsewhere on today's agenda, the collapse of Malaysia's government on Monday has brought internal tensions between the nation's two prominent political figures to the fore. After forming an uneasy coalition in 2018, incumbent Matahir Mohamed agreed to hand power to arch-rival Anwar Ibrahim by 2020. However, after a spate of delays and Matahir tendering his resignation as Prime Minister on Sunday, he was quickly reappointed as interim leader. It now seems that Anwar's bid may have been thwarted. And officials in Sydney are considering cancelling a light rail project due to budget concerns. It follows another rail project in the Central Business District, which is forecast to exceed its original estimate by nearly two billion US dollars. The government has yet to make an official announcement on whether the rail line connecting Parramatta to the Olympic Stadium will proceed. 
Read more about today's stories by subscribing to our daily email bulletin at our website. I'm Ben Ryland. The Monocle Minute returns on Friday. Thank you.